Thank you for uh, your letters of um, support and prayers, uh, notes and so on for us uh, in the last couple of weeks in, in Dad's death and uh, just so very much appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, and to encourage you, among us there'll be others who are grieving, just a short note is really compelling and powerful. Don't underestimate the significance of it. Just quickly say, thinking of you, praying for you. Really very helpful. So thank you. Um, the second thing is to let you know that Tomorrow, Monday week, so in a week's time, starting on a Monday, we have our annual Reach Australia conference here. We've been running this, I don't know, eight, eight nine years now. There's a larger organisation that's part of it too now, so it's not just us. But um, to let you know uh, that you might be in prayer about it, uh, two weeks ago it was sold out and we capped it, the sellout thing at uh, 1,050 people. It's now got a waiting list, so there'll be about 1,100 pastors from around the country and some from overseas here amongst us this uh, in a week's time so that's fantastic isn't it what a wonderful opportunity to serve together encourage one another in reaching Australia Uh, and that's what it's all about so I love your prayers we want to invite you to partner in that work this is your work you've been part of this from the very beginning to partner it in prayer unless the Lord builds a house the laborers labor in vain we can do all that we do unless he's in it It'll be of no account. So we want to plead with God. Can I, can I urge you, please, this week to be in prayer uh, that um, God might use that time to stir Australian Christians and churches around, leaders, pastors around the country uh, to, um, to go back to their churches and stir one another to love and good deeds and the work of bringing the gospel out. What a great opportunity. Pray for Jackie Carney. She's doing the cooking. She's feeding 1,100 people. So, uh, wow, out of her kitchen at home. So we'll see how that goes. Let me, uh, let me pray. Father, we, we do thank you for the many ways you have worked amongst us, in us, through us. We pray, please, today that by your grace and kindness you would be at work by your Holy Spirit in us to transform and change us by your grace, that we might be people who are different because of our engagement with you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about money. Now, actually, not money directly, but certainly money, giving, and the distinction may seem trivial, actually, but it's an important one to make. And I'm saying this up front because I know that it can trigger various reactions. And in fact, I want to hear what reactions you might think people would have when they hear that a church is going to spend two weeks talking about money, giving. What sort of reactions might people have, do you think? Give us your thoughts. None. Good. Okay. <laughs> They're only after our money. Churches are only after money. That's right. And uh, it's a very common sense in the world in which I grew up in. That's what churches were about. When my parents heard that I was going to give up my job and do this kind of thing, they were horrified that I'd just be about money. Yes. Just to put that one to rest, churches uh, properly, healthy churches are not just about your money. Just know that that's, they're about your whole life which includes your money as well. Um, It's about everything, but money is a very tiny, trivial piece of it, yes. What other reasons are cause for a concern? I think someone else over here was speaking. Yes, there's the issue of uh, abuse, churches and their abuse of money. I think that's what you're referring to, isn't it? Uh, You've seen my backyard and the jet that's there. (laughs) 
Yeah, the, the, the way churches have abused money, and so when churches talk about money, it just feels manipulative that, oh, here we go again, churches are not only always about it, they're just about it so that their leaders can get more money and get rich and wealthy, wealthy and so on. Um, it's, it's true. Um, it, is, uh, it is a thing that happens so much so that there is a famous joke that's not very famous really and it's not that funny either but the um the joke goes that an airplane is about to crash this is a true story apparently and the plane the, it was on its way down and someone in distress yelled out quickly do something religious and someone else responded by saying yes take up a collection which is kind of the religious thing you do such as the association between money churches and the abuse of it and so on it is the case that as we come to this topic over the next few weeks some of you shrug and go yeah sure bring it on. You're actually very happy to have the conversation, keen to hear about the issue, see what the Bible teaches on it. But others of you are concerned, you might be new to church and you've always thought the church was just after your money. Now we're not, please we're not. Um, We want you to come and find the Lord Jesus and life in him. Uh, What you do with your money flows from that but that's not what we're about at all. Um, Or it might be you've come from another church and the church you've been in has been one that only ever talked about money. Every week there was a speech about money and you're hoping to escape all of that and you've seen how churches have abused money and you're terrified that this church might be that church. And so for you to come along triggers for you, oh no, we're back in that. Um, whatever, it's very tempting for some to flex the next couple of weeks. Well, you can't now, you're here. Though at 8.30 I did see people leaving as I was talking, so uh, we'll just watch, keep an eye on you now, um, keep those legs crossed for the bladder problem. But um, it is very tempting to think, because uh, yeah, if you leave now, wow, we're all going to be noticing it. Um, and I'll name you as you go. It, um, do you know, um, don't, 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 do, don't not come next week because you're afraid of these things, because what I want to say to you is so much that the Bible has to say about money is surprising. And what the Bible has to talk about here is refreshing. It's actually challenging, yes, but it's liberating. It will be good for our souls to think about this together. Because money is a thing for us in our lives. One of the reasons we get triggered when people talk about money is because that conversation about money does something for us it threatens this thing that's actually got its claws in us and is precious to us and we know that if we rip it out it'll take lots of flesh with it and we want to protect this thing that's now buried in our lives and so when you talk about money it's not just a genuine thing of it's more than just there are sometimes genuine reactions that are appropriate but sometimes it's actually don't touch this thing that's precious to me it really means so much to me I'm addicted to it it's like a drug And so I become fearful that it might be taken from me. What will happen to me if it's taken? This happens with churches as well and church leadership because we're people and we can become addicted to money in the kind of church ministries that are run. Churches and their eldership needs to be alert to that. So this has got a great word for me as well and for us. But it happens to all of us sitting here. We get captivated by money. You do. And I want to show us some of this 
together as we go along. Now, with all of that as a start, sort of an awareness that, yes, there's some triggering that might occur, you might be threatened and so on. This is refreshing. It'll be good for your soul. Stick with us in this. And I'm going to try it and do it in a way that doesn't inappropriately engage with this, you see. Now, we're doing it because I want to note a few things about what we're doing. We're looking at two chapters of 2 Corinthians, this letter, this ancient letter written to a group in Corinth 2,000 years ago by the Apostle Paul. We're back into this letter. We're starting at chapter 8. We did the first seven chapters last year. We're now back into it. And these two chapters are talking about it. And so our practice is to go chapter by chapter. And when it talks about it, we talk about it. Uh, now, this letter was one of four letters that Paul wrote to this church. And, it, and he didn't always talk about money. He talked about lots of other topics, as we as a church do as well. We, it's not every week we do this. Now, we will come back to it in the second half of this year because we've got a giving campaign that we need to prepare for, uh, for the property and so on. Um, but we, we, we work hard to not talk about it all the time. We've got financial needs, but we, just, we don't want to keep raising it. We want to let God work amongst us and so on. Um, now, these two chapters, though, are focused on a very specific act of giving. And that's important for us to understand so that we apply this properly. Um, Now, if you've got an NIV, if you've brought a Bible that's got that translation, you'll see like mine, there's bold headings uh, above different sections. They're not written by the Apostle Paul. They're not original to the Bible. They're just put in there by translators to help us make sense of it. And you'll see at the top of chapter 8, the collection for the Lord's people. Now, that little statement is put there because as you go through chapter 8, you'll see the expression the Lord's people used a few times. You see it there in verse 4. They urgently plead with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. Now, that's a hint that this is a very specific giving thing going on here. And I want to explain what it is. You get it again in chapter 9, verse 12, I think it is, or is it? Yes, Yes, the needs of the Lord's people, um, that little phrase again. Now, what, is it, what does he mean when he talks about the Lord's people? Now, the temptation is to go, well, he's just referring to Christians, the Lord's people. But no, he's not. Uh, in the original language, it's not two words, Lord's people, it's one word, saints. It's, it's this act of giving to the saints. Now, we're used to the idea of talking about saints as all Christians, and the Bible often does talk about saints as, for all, Christ, as all Christians. It certainly doesn't do what, what um, many of through history have done, elevate some Christians to sainthood. The Bible doesn't talk like that. All Christians are holy ones by virtue of the Lord Jesus. But in some contexts, the language of saints does refer to a certain kind of Christian. And let me tell you what it is. What Paul means by the language of saint here in this context, is a refer- it's a reference to Jewish Christians. Not just any Christians, but Jewish Christians um, who are living in Judea, Jerusalem, where there was a great famine happening. Paul is concerned to get non-Jewish people, the Gentile churches, to raise funds to support the saints, the Jewish Christians in Judea who were going through a famine. So this is not just any act of charity for poor people. 
It's a very particular thing for the Apostle Paul. It's not just Christians in need who happen to be in Jerusalem. There's something richer going on. Come to, I'm not just making this up. It comes from Romans chapter 15. Turn your Bibles back to Romans 15 and you'll see it. Have a look at Romans 15. Bring your Bible along week by week. It's always very helpful to have it there. Romans 15 verse 25. Now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the saints there. Same word. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. Do you see what he's just said? I'm talking to you Gentiles, the Corinthian churches, to give to the Jews, the Jewish Christians, the saints in Judea, Jerusalem. There's a very particular giving campaign going on here. And why is it the case that he wants to raise money from the Gentiles to give to these Jewish Christians, the saints? Because the Gentile Christians received the gospel from the Jewish Christians. The gospel was born out of Judaism and a particular historical group of people at their cost brought the gospel to the Gentiles. Now they're going through a famine and Paul wants the material blessings the Gentiles have received to come back as an expression of the unity the Jew and Gentile have together. This is a very particular and unique historical context that's being talked about here not just poor people in another place not just Christians in need elsewhere but a very particular group of Christians now that explains much of the shape of this chapter that's why verse 8 chapter 8 verse 8 see it there he says I'm not commanding you but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others I'm not commanding you you see, why, this is why Paul doesn't command the Gentile Christians in Corinth to give money to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. He doesn't command them because this is a very particular kind of giving. Other kinds of giving, he would command them. What kind of giving would Paul command a Christian about? They're giving in response to receiving a service. You see, when you go to the dentist, you pay the dentist. And it's not a love offering. Certainly not that, right? <laughs> I love your work. It's, it's actually because they've done you a service and you pay them to enable them to keep doing, the, to do the service they've done for you, to get the training and all the equipment. You have to pay them, you see. Um, and in the same way, much of church life, you are receiving a service from all of us together. But, but that service costs. Someone has to pay for the lights so that we can come and see. Someone has to pay for the equipment. Someone has to pay for the building. Someone has to pay for the, the ministry staff that are put aside to prepare and equip and train and lead. Someone has to pay for all the Sunday school classroom buildings. And, all, and, and you come and you receive a service from all of that. You put your kids in, your youth in to all the ministries. And that all has to be paid for. And so if you're benefiting from all of that, it's just a simple obligation that you pay for it. Much of Christian giving is simply paying for a service you receive. And don't underestimate the service that's there. It's the, it's the provision of uh, uh, teaching and content, but community, facilitation of community to be around you, to support you in all the ups and downs of life, to train your kids and raise your kids, and all of that's gifted to you 
that we might therefore pay things cost, you benefit, you pay. And Paul would rightly say, I would rightly say, you ought to give just to pay for the service. Now, how much should that be? What money value do you put on that service? It's an important thing to consider. Now, the act of giving he's talking about here is not paying for service. It's an act of giving where there's no return. So he doesn't command them, and in fact he can't command them, because that would undermine the nature of their giving. This giving that he's talking about here is an act of appreciation, which is why in this context he bangs on about the heart. This gift to Jewish Christians won't work if it's begrudging. Whereas your paying for the service of the church ministries you receive, if it's given begrudgingly, go for it. Because it just needs to, you need, we need to pay for the service, you see. But here, if this giving to this, this activity, the Jewish Christians in, in Jerusalem, is done begrudgingly, if it's token, it will destroy the gift. Let me give you an example. At work... Your boss is leaving um, and uh, someone in the office says, let's take up a collection to show our appreciation for all his or her work amongst us uh, and goes around with a hat to collect the money. Um, now, the idea of the gift is to say, we like, now, this is not to pay a service, they're being paid. This is just to show how much we as workers have in, you know, appreciate your leadership or whatever it is. Now... Someone, as the hat comes around, sticks a gold coin in. Are you going to give to this? Yeah, sure. Gold coin. And says to themselves, tick, I've given. Now, how would the boss feel if they, at the end of the day, from five staff, receive $10? How would they feel? Unappreciated. <laughs> It would be offensive. Better you didn't give it all. It would mock their leadership. Do you see how it works? Um, or if you go around and you say, you've got to give 50 bucks. Completely ruins the gift. Because it's meant to be an expression. You see, you see the point? That's exactly what's going on here. Um, Paul wants to have the Gentiles give money to the poor Jewish, the Christians in, the Jewish Christians in, in Jerusalem who are going through a famine, and he wants it to be a true thing of the heart so that the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem go, it's been worth it. The cause of the gospel ringing out from Jerusalem and all that we've gone through, that the Gentiles are brought in on an equal footing, has been worth the sacrifice. And look at how the Gentiles are captivated by what we've brought, how God's come through. That's what God intended to happen. That's what Paul is about. That's why he doesn't mention the word money in all of this. He's not actually concerned about the money. He's concerned about the heart in the giving of the money. In one sense, the, the amount of money is secondary. It's about the motive. That's why in verse 11, he says... Uh, do it that, that it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. Do, do, do you see, the, the Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians, when they receive this gift, it, it won't be the raw amount that matters, it'll be the raw amount in the context of the wealth of what the Corinthians had to give. That they gave in their poverty, 
a small amount would be an extraordinary thing. That they gave a lot in their wealth would be, you see, according to your means. Um, So it's not a command, it needs to be an act of the heart that properly reflects the Gentile sense of appreciation and love of their Jewish brethren from whom the gospel sprung. Now how then does he motivate them? He can't command them. How does he motivate them? Well, he motivates them by the example of two different people. And by a subtle act of putting the knife in and twisting it. Have you noticed this as you've gone through it? Wow. Who are the two people? Well, the first people are the Macedonians. Look at verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace. So he's writing to the Corinthians. He says to the Corinthians, I want you to know about what another church did. I want you to know about the grace God gave to the Macedonian churches, Philippi, Thessalonica, these places. In the midst of very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints, to the Jewish Christians in Judea. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave them first of all, first of, gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. I take it what Paul means by that is that they first of all gave themselves to the Lord to an awareness that this is God's concern, this is his heart. They bowed themselves to his purposes and then they gave themselves to Paul saying, Paul is God's voice to us. We acknowledge his leadership amongst us and we're committed to him and what he's about. The things that he loves and he's committed to, we've given ourselves to be with him in it. I think that's what's being said. And all of this meant that they were committed to giving, sacrificially. They supported the Apostle Paul in gospel preaching. You'll see that in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, actually, but also Philippians chapter 4. Uh, It was Macedonian money that actually meant Paul didn't have to work for a living. He was freed up by their money that he could be a missionary, that he could be a gospel preacher. The Macedonians understood what God was about and what Paul was about and so gave to it. Now, what is he doing, though, in sharing the news about the Macedonian church to the Corinthians? Here's what he's doing. And tune in for this. He's showing them what the grace of God does to a person. He's showing them what the grace of God does to a person. Now, you may not notice this in the English, but in the original language, the word grace pops up a number of times. Chapter 8, verse 1, verse 4, verse 7, verse 9, uh, and again through the... The English translates it a little bit differently every now and then, but the word grace is there again. The grace that God has given. Verse 4, grace and fellowship of giving. Verse 7, see that we excel in this grace of giving. And then the example of Christ, the grace of our Lord. He's showing what grace does to a person. So dig here for a moment and consider the word grace. What does grace mean? Well, fundamentally, the word grace means kindness, favour and generosity. So to be gracious towards someone is to act towards them in ways they don't deserve, to be gracious. 
They've hurt me, I don't hurt back. I give them beyond what they could ever have expected because I'm gracious. We talk about it as unmerited favour, grace. That's fundamentally what the word means. But here, Paul stretches the meaning of the word to include a kind of power that's at work in a person to make them gracious. Do you see verse 1? The grace, I want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. God has acted with favour towards the Macedonian churches and given them his grace to stir within them a life of grace. That they might be people of grace. What is it to be a person of grace? It's to be kind, generous, warm, good towards other people. Grace is open, it's honest, wholesome, good, it's wanting good for others, grace. And you can contrast grace with the life of clinging to things yourself. Holding on to things, being concerned about yourself before others, keeping, seeing the bad in others and wanting bad for others, finding fault, whereas grace looks for the best and is generous and warm-hearted and open and giving, you see. Now, here is the beauty of these chapters about money, which is never mentioned, money. It's about a life change in a person to create in a person a face towards others for their good. To actually free a person to be gracious, generous, favourable towards others, warm and open-hearted towards others. Do you not want to have that kind of life? To turn a person from being inward-looking, keeping hold of, fighting for their rights to being outward-looking, warm and open. Now, we might once have called this the language of love, being loving. The problem with the word love is today, when love is love, you don't know what love is anymore, anything that's love. So love is losing its meaning. Grace is a beautiful word. What kind of life do you want? Do you want to be that person who goes through life clinging to yourself, things, protecting that greed, Do you want to be that person that thinks first of what I need and reluctantly only? Do you want to be that person? It'll poison your life. It'll diminish who you are. It'll diminish your family. It'll dishonour God. Put it like this, what Paul is pursuing for these people is not money. What he wants for them is something glorious and wonderful and liberating. It's not actually about money, it's becoming a person of grace. Like the Macedonians, who were people of generosity towards others, who were quick to see their obligations and responsibilities. They were quick, they begged for the right to give because they saw what they'd been given from the the Jewish Christians. They see how much they owed them and they were quick to recognise their responsibilities and obligations and wanted to give back. They were quick to see their needs, the needs of others. Here it's talking about a physical need, but they were quick to see Paul's spiritual needs, the needs of the people that Paul was preaching to, that he might support Paul. They were quick to see the needs of others. They weren't stingy, they weren't miserly, they wanted to give. 
Paul's not about money, he's about producing Christ in us. And so he finally, verse 9, lands on Jesus, the ultimate example of open, generous, wholesome, good love. Jesus, who was, verse 9, though rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Wow. This is one of those verses that you've got to memorise. And in many ways, I'm going to come back to that verse just in a second, just to unpack it a bit more. But what Paul is doing through this is, in a sense, a quiet work of shaming the Corinthians, isn't he? He's saying, this is how you are. Let me show you how the Macedonians are. And let me now show you how Jesus is. And it's designed in many ways to shake them up, to put the knife in, to twist it, which is a terrible thing to do normally. Don't shame your kids. Don't ever shame your kids. It's a terrible thing to do. Except when it's done in the context of shaming a person by showing them the generosity of God, the openness and love and grace of another... What it does is it actually melts our hearts and doesn't crush our spirits. When you see how Jesus has been towards you, does that not want to make a difference to you? To make me a person who is open and giving and generous. You see, consider verse 9 a little bit more. He being rich, though he was rich, I think this is a reference to his pre-incarnate life, the life in eternity before he entered our world, his divine existence, where he was eternally blessed in the oneness of relationship with the Father and the Spirit, eternally praised on the throne of glory, adored in intimate union with his Father, seen for the greatness of who he was, with all the prestige and power of Godness, if you like. But he emptied himself, became poor. And I think in this becoming poor language, Paul is referring to the totality of his act to save us. That is, he was born in Bethlehem as a man. He took on human flesh. He, he lived his life as a nobody, born in a shed. And during his ministry, he had no home. God had no pillow to lay his head on. He lived off the gifts of others, the charity of others. God, who was rich, emptied himself and then gave himself up to abuse, both verbal and physical. Then the crucifixion. He gave himself over to the cross, even death on a cross. And more, he did that bearing our sin. He became poor spiritually. He took on himself our guilt and shame and died under the judgment of God because of it. All of that. So that we might become rich. And I think what he's referring to here is the spiritual riches of righteousness. Justification before the holy God. That we might have the righteousness of Christ that's not ours by merit. But is given by a gift. So that I can stand before God completely free of guilt and condemnation. Forgiven, reconciled. And this was done because God became poor. 
He did it freely. Grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Is that how we say grace? Yeah. An extraordinary truth. And the Macedonians are a great example of a grace life, a life of grace, a life captivated by what God has done for them in giving them everything, not that they therefore might live with everything, but that they might be like God themselves, giving everything for the sake of others, open and generous and free of spirit. He points to the Macedonians but quickly comes to the fact that there's a greater example than even them. There is one that's infinitely greater, that example of God which is, of course, the very one that drives the grace of the Macedonians. Now, friends, let me apply this to us in the last few minutes. Good Bible reading uh, doesn't just rip verses out of context and say what's convenient. We've got to keep working and understand the Bible in its own terms, in its own context. So let me start by saying what this passage is not, what, what, it, what it's not teaching us. It's not teaching us about giving to church, first and foremost. That's important for me to say because we have financial need as a church. You've heard about our needs and it's very tempting to use this passage to say, therefore, but that would be to twist the passage. Um, Rather, I think we just command each other to give to church. It's an obligation. But no, this passage is not about giving to church and the ministries of church. Uh, as great as the need is there. Uh, It's not about giving to the poor. This passage is not about how we should give to poor people or poor Christians. These people were poor, uh, but they were a very particular kind of poor people that almost doesn't exist today. I'm tempted to say doesn't exist today. It's the poor Jewish Christians in the first century from whom the gospel sprung forth. It's not just all poor Christians or all Jewish poor Christians and so this passage is not about you should give to poor Jewish people poor Christians now it's not about those two things but you can see implications that flow you should give to poor people you should give to you know, I'm not saying don't do those things I'm saying that, but it's just not this passage so what is it here's what it is it's about the kind of person we are It's about your heart. It's about being in touch with the true heart of God, what he is like, what he has done for us, the difference that ought to make towards us because of his grace given to us. It ought to change us to have a new posture in the way we live, a posture that's that's open and generous and outward-looking and concerned for the needs of others, both material and spiritual. You see, what does it look like to be brought to the feet of Jesus and see what he's done? What will life look like? What must life look like if you've received the grace of Christ? Overflowing. Your life will overflow with generosity. It'll be a voluntary generosity. Willing and eager like the Macedonians. That will just be your posture. It'll overflow in a desire to do good to others and give to others, even at cost to yourself. Voluntarily. To be kind. You won't need someone to harangue you and keep telling you. It'll be an overflow that isn't coerced but eager and willing. Does this this sound like you? 
Now, that is a cruel question in one sense, isn't it? Because we're all a work in progress. The Corinthians were certainly a work in progress, and so are we. I am. They had, it's interesting, they had wanted to give to this service to the saints in Jerusalem. Uh, some of the earlier chapters and sections give you those hints. But they'd said, yeah, we will, we will, but never followed through. They'd been in church and heard about a need and said, yeah, yeah, we should do that, gone home and forgotten all about it. That was the Corinthians. They had every intention. The Macedonians, however, they didn't even need to have the need brought to them. They initiated the act of giving. They followed through on it. They didn't get disgruntled when news of finances, they were, they were constantly wanting to know. How can I help? Now, brothers and sisters, this is a massive change to middle-class Australians. Money does something to us. Money is like a drug. It's like a parasite that gets its claws into your heart and it becomes part of you and you protect money, you protect your possessions, you protect your lifestyle. This is who we are as middle... This is sin. This is the Corinthian world. You know, we are the richest people on earth. Now, not every one of us. Some of you here are really very poor. Some of you here are living hand to mouth and just as the money comes in, uh, you pay all the bills, you've got no room for anything else. So please, if that's you, I'm not talking to you. But the vast majority of us here are immensely rich. Sure, interest rates are going up, power bills are going up, food prices and so on, and for some that will be truly hard. There are a few amongst us for whom that will be very difficult. But most of us can still pay for Netflix, a coffee every day, pet food. Do you know Australians spend $33 billion on pet food, which averages out at $3,300 per family per year who have a pet? We are not poor. Now, I'm not having a go at you for having Netflix or, or we go to McDonald's. You take your family. I'm not having a go at any of the holidays. Not having, I'm just saying, don't cry poor. We're not poor. It's not wrong to enjoy good things. But we aren't truly in need. The problem is what money does to us is that it redefines need. This parasite grabs us and says, um, look, sure, your grandparents never had carpet. They only had one bedroom. But you need three, four bedrooms, fully carpeted with a dishwasher with it. You need that. And you need two cars. And you need overseas trips. And you need... This parasite does this thing to us. Our houses now are massively bigger than they ever were with fewer people living in them. Do you know an older Christian brother uh, who, who's old enough to have lived through many, much more generational Christian life than us, he says this, he says that the greatest spiritual challenge for Christians today the greatest spiritual challenge for Christians today is materialism materialism and we don't even see it we're worried about gender issues and sexuality and headship submission and um, you know the, the state of the church and he says it's materialism and I think he's right we don't see Macedonians much anymore. We critique them, actually, as foolish. 
Uh, we, we say, how foolish of them to give beyond their means. But let me actually give a thought of analysis. When you read verse 13 of chapter 8 down to 15, I think what Paul is effectively saying there, there's some complexity, but I think what Paul is saying, um, don't give so much that you become a charity case. I think that's all Paul's saying. The Macedonians gave beyond their means, but not in such a way that they then needed to receive charity to keep them alive. Paul's saying, they gave, they gave, they gave, but they were able to still fund their life. Housing, clothing, food. They may not have afforded Netflix, though. It's not wrong to enjoy good things. Paul says in another context, all good things were given to us for our enjoyment. It's not wrong to have holidays. It's not wrong to have a nice house. It's not wrong to have a dog. These other things are not wrong. Just don't cry poor. The point is, what kind of heart do you have? Do you have one freed from the love of money? Or has it got its claws in you? Do you have one that's full of grace, the grace to be generous and open and want to give and want to give more and stretch? Do you have that heart? Or do you have a heart that's clinging to yourself? Well, how much have we understood Jesus? The God of the universe who, though rich, emptied himself, became poor, died, gave up everything so that we could be right before him. That grace must impact us. What should we do? Give ourselves to the Lord first. We are his servants. Whatever he calls us to, we will do. Be like him. But then give yourself to the apostles, to Paul and the other apostles, in the sense that whatever they teach me as God's word to me, whatever they value, whatever cause they're committed to, I'll be committed to. Like the Macedonians, committed themselves first to the Lord, then to Paul, to care about what he cared about. Do that. And here's what you'll find. If you give yourself to the Lord and then to Paul, you will care about the things they cared about. What are the things they cared about? What was it God, what was it the Lord Jesus came to do at such a cost? What did he come to do? Seek and save the lost. That's the great God longs that all be saved. The Apostle Paul spent himself to bring the message of Christ to the world. And even his appeal to the Roman, to the, the, the Jewish Christians in Rome, in Jerusalem, even his appeal there has spiritual connotations. What matters is seeking and saving the spiritual priority. Be a grace-filled person who looks for every need. Financial poverty, deal with it. Pay, help. But see the greater need, the spiritual one. And give financially out of an overflow of the heart that we might see many, many more people saved. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the astonishing generosity we see in Jesus. Thank you for his grace towards us, that your grace in giving us your son, that though rich he became poor, that out of his poverty we might become rich. Please help us be captivated by that example that we might be truly and deeply transformed to be like the Macedonians. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.